It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Google's research lab started a project a few years ago that it thought had the potential to slow the impact of man-made climate change. It was going to make fuel from carbon dioxide harvested from seawater. This fuel would still release carbon when it was burned, just like oil and gas. But because it was made from carbon taken from the atmosphere instead of taken from underground deposits, it wouldn't end up increasing the overall level of greenhouse gases. Our world economy is fueled by fossil fuels still, and they have a lot of amazing properties that are hard to replicate. And so if we could make renewable fuels, we would just advance substantially as a, you know, world civilization. That's Kathy Hanoon, who led the project, which Google called Foghorn. And the Foghorn team actually did succeed in making fuel from seawater. But Google pulled the plug on the project anyway in early 2016 because it was just too expensive. It just didn't look like we would be able to hit a price point on a timeline that would justify the very large investment that would be required to bring that technology to market. Scientists have known for decades that it's theoretically possible to suck carbon from air or water and turn it into all kinds of products. To date, a big problem with carbon removal efforts is that they've been too expensive to justify doing on a large scale on any practical basis. Three years after Foghorn ended, other researchers think they're coming even closer to cracking the code. One of them is a tiny company named Prometheus. It's not using the exact same technology that Google used for Foghorn, but it does see itself picking up where Google left off. The company even counts the person who was the technical lead on Foghorn as an advisor. But for any of this to matter, these new companies are going to have to act quickly. Here's Julio Friedman, an expert on carbon management at Columbia University. If you're getting into this business because you want to help on climate, you're on the clock. We need to deepen emissions very, very quickly. If it takes us 70 years to displace the incumbent, we lose. Like, that's that's not good. A growing number of experts now believe that carbon capture technology is a necessary part of any plan to confront climate change. The problem is moving it out of the laboratory and up to the kind of scale that could make a difference at a planetary level and doing it fast enough to avoid the potentially disastrous effects of climate change. It's a daunting prospect, but there's never been more support from private investors and policymakers. Maybe this is the rare case where the biggest business opportunity is also a chance to save the world. I'm Pia Gadkari. And I'm Joshua Brustein. You're listening to Decrypted. If you want to know what's hot in the tech startup world, there may not be a better place to look than Y Combinator Demo Day. Twice a year, 
Several dozen hand-picked startups give two-minute pitches to a room full of investors, media types, and industry insiders. It's a big deal. YC is a tech investment firm that's famous for its role launching companies like Airbnb, Dropbox, and Reddit. Every founder that takes the stage oozes with optimism that they're about to hit it big. And no one else can compete in this market because no one else has better tech and no one else can beat our price. It's incredibly simple. It only takes 10 minutes to set up. Because we are actually profitable, we are now live and are poised to take over a $34 billion market. Thank you all. In recent years, YC has also begun testing out its own sweeping social projects. In 2016, it said it was going to begin experimenting with the concept of paying people a universal basic income. That year, it also said it was going to build a city from the ground up. YC's side projects serve as a barometer of the big questions that Silicon Valley is fixated on at any one moment in time. And this year, YC said it was specifically seeking pitches from startups working to remove carbon from the atmosphere. It was overwhelmed with responses. 60 startups applied to the program. It accepted just two of them, and one of those was Prometheus. The company was started by a guy named Rob McGinnis. At Demo Day, Rob took the stage and told the audience that he had built a machine that could make gasoline from thin air and that it could do it at a profit. This was an idea with the potential to be the underpinning of a huge business and a real force in the fight against climate change. It was also pretty audacious coming from such a small company. After Demo Day, I visited Rob in his co-working space about two hours south of San Francisco. We formed a company and I started building our first prototype system. When you say we, it's really just you at this point. Yeah, but I had help. So it's like people have been working as if they're going to have jobs. And now they are. (laughs) Rob's machine is a six-foot-tall box, three feet on each side, it's the size of a real big refrigerator. So, you know, I had this open. And have you looked at it since it came back from San Francisco? I haven't really. This is the first unveiling. Everything's still here on the rack, so that's good. Okay. Um, we'll have to go through and make sure nothing rattled loose. But I, I mean, and is this your only one at the moment? Yeah, this is it. Okay. So we were really nervous loading and unloading it, you know, but it was important to have it there for people to be able to see what we're talking about. Sure. So these are power supplies. Um, so he opens it up, sure and I can see that, that we'll there's a cooling unit on the top and a little screen that shows a video feed from what's going on inside the machine. That's just bubbles coming out of water. And there's some piping and some wires. And then at the bottom, there's a little spigot where the gas can come out. Rob asked me not to take pictures. We don't want people to see kind of exactly our piping and instrumentation design because, um, you know, eventually people will compete doing things that may be similar and we don't want to give anybody any, you know, shortcuts. The clever thing about Rob's machine is that it ends up at exactly the same place that traditional gas companies end up. It just starts somewhere different. Traditionally, the process of making gas starts with drilling something out of the ground, you refine it, you put it in your car, and you burn it. This releases carbon into the atmosphere. And that's the problem. The more fossil fuels we burn, the more the carbon builds up in our atmosphere, and that's ultimately contributing to climate change. But if you can use the carbon that's already in the air to make your gasoline, 
your carbon footprint can theoretically be zero. You just create a circular process that recycles the same carbon over and over. And that's what Rob's trying to do. What's cool about this is it's reverse combustion, right? So when you burn fuel, you make uh, water, carbon dioxide, and energy. Yeah, some sort of work, hopefully. Um, and those three things can be combined back into, um, into gasoline, but the byproduct is oxygen. So this thing is like a little mechanical forest. Just like trees, Rob's machine would remove carbon dioxide from the air. Of course, there are some caveats. The process requires a significant amount of energy. If that energy doesn't come from renewable sources, like wind or solar energy, you'll just end up burning carbon to make your carbon-neutral fuel, and that defeats the whole purpose. It can also be really expensive. I contacted Matt Eisenman, who was the technical lead on Foghorn for Google. He's advising Rob, and I was interested in what he had to say about Prometheus. Matt said people regularly approach him with ideas for carbon removal companies, seeking his endorsement or his advice. Prometheus stood out to Matt because of advances Rob had made in materials sciences. These would allow him to turn carbon into fuel in liquid stage. Before then, people had been heating it up and doing this in gaseous form. This would mean that Prometheus can conduct its process at a lower temperature. That requires less power, and that makes everything cheaper. Rob's machines can also be small enough to be portable, so he could physically move them around based on where the power is cheapest at any time. In the weeks after Demo Day, Rob said he was able to raise all the money he was after and that he'd use it to hire a few employees and move the project on to the next phase. But he didn't want to say how much he had raised or from whom. Prometheus is entering a growing carbon capture industry. There's a number of stages that companies are focused on. There are the companies that want to perfect the process of sucking the carbon out of the air. That's known as direct air carbon capture. Climeworks, Global Thermostat, and Carbon Engineering have all been working on that project for years. Then there are companies like Opus 12 who want to use the technology to make not only fuel, but other industrial chemicals, like carbon monoxide. And then there's another set of businesses that want to use repurposed carbon to build alternatives to concrete and other construction materials. Meanwhile, Rob wants to go after another huge market, which is the gasoline market. And he believes that it will be possible for him to start producing gasoline at profitable rates within a year. He's told us about $3 a gallon at first. Of course, for now, he's just asking us to take his word for it. We've been building um, both this prototype system and also the economic model uh, that we're basing our assumptions on uh, during that time. And have you actually produced any gasoline during that period? No, no. We just finished the machine on Friday, but um, there's no question it will make fuel because everything in it has already been used to do what it's done before. So there's no, there's no, like, no new part in this system. It's really just things that have been done, done before independently. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
What most climate scientists agree on is that the planet needs more carbon capture. Last fall, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said carbon removal would be a necessary part of the response to the problem. Estimates of how much carbon we need to be removing from the atmosphere every year are in the range of 10 gigatons. That's 10 billion tons of carbon, or about a quarter of the current annual level of global CO2 emissions. That means companies like Rob's have to start having some real successes, and real soon. But not everyone involved in carbon removal is necessarily building new machines. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I was, um, the same week I met Rob, I also met with Diego Saez-Gill, the founder of Pachama. That's the other carbon removal company that got into YC. Diego didn't have a machine to show me. His company makes software that's meant to improve carbon offset markets. These are transactions in which someone, usually a business that releases a lot of carbon into the atmosphere, would pay someone else to remove or prevent the release of a similar amount of carbon. So the software Diego is writing might one day allow people to pay Prometheus, for example, for the greenhouse gases that it eliminates. Remember how Rob had described his machine as a kind of mechanical forest? The carbon removal technology that most interests Diego are actual forests. You know, we need energy break- breakthroughs too. We need to reduce emissions and transition to a low carbon uh, energy matrix. Uh, all those efforts need to be explored. Um, we, we, you know, we're just starting with, with what we think is the easiest and cheapest. Just, just plant more trees, you know. Diego told me he's spent his whole career in technology up to this point doing things that he looks back and feels are kind of inconsequential. So much of the tech industry has been focused on making life convenient around the edges, helping us order tacos from our phones or whatever. And Diego thinks that this is his chance to do something bigger than that. But he also knows that if a real carbon economy emerges, there's going to be a lot of money to be made as a middleman. I strongly believe that it's an amazing economic opportunity as well, right? It might be the economic opportunity of the 21st century to fix climate change. Of course, a lot has to happen for those economics to pan out. Most businesses won't start paying for the carbon they're emitting until there's a law saying they have to. Diego's business really depends on governments taking action in order to work. This runs counter to a lot of what you've heard from the tech industry in recent years. It says that government regulation is often an impediment to innovation, not its spark. And betting on politicians is always risky. But that's not even the only big question hanging over this industry. There's something a little strange about just letting the biggest climate offenders buy their way out of the problem. And with all of these carbon capture technologies, on one hand it's good because we can keep doing things the way we always have without adding to the emissions that are already in the atmosphere. But critics would say, ultimately, we have to develop technologies that don't create emissions at all. Right. So this is the view that carbon removal technologies are a fantasy that allow us to count on some easy way out to emerge so that we don't have to make the tough decisions that we'd have to make otherwise. It's definitely been a part of the discussion around them. I asked Julio Friedman about this. He's the Columbia professor we heard from at the top of the episode. Julio has studied carbon management for nearly two decades, and these arguments about moral hazards really don't hold water with him. He says it's unclear what kind of technologies are going to work, and so we should really be trying everything. The more technologies we try, the greater the chances we have of finding something that works. Because so many of these ideas are doomed to fail, often for reasons we don't quite understand yet. 
And history has proven repeatedly that finding something that's better than fossil fuel is going to be really, really hard. So there are many companies that have broken their spears on this. There are many companies that were like, we're going to make something that's going to compete with gasoline, and they're dead. You know, Josh, one of the things that has kind of intrigued me most is the fact that despite this incredibly urgent need for the technology, the market is still in such early phases. Yeah, I think when you start looking at any new project, it's a discovery and you think, wow, people are just starting down this road and it's exciting. But one of the first things I found out was that the main direct air carbon capturing companies have been around for years. They're just still very early. And I think that's a reminder of how difficult the technological problems are here. I mean, Google gave up. (laughs) There is a real question about can you do this in a way that makes any economic sense? And even if you do that, then the scale up has to be so rapid and so big that it's a really daunting problem in and of itself. And that's a technological and a sort of economic problem. I think one interesting example of kind of where we are with this industry right now is one of the other applications that companies have focused on. And that's selling bubbles to beverage makers. They need to buy carbon. And so direct air carbon capture companies have been trying to strike deals with these bottling companies to say, hey, we'll sell you your bubbles. We can do it at close to a reasonable price right now for this application. And then they can start learning about how maybe they get to some of these broader applications. And that's one of the things that's notable about Rob's company is that he's actually going after a much bigger, more established market, which is the gasoline market. Yeah, absolutely. Rob is a very convincing proponent of this idea. Obviously, you have to be. He says, look, if I can make gasoline that's the same as the gasoline that goes into your car, then there's already pipes to move that gasoline. I don't have to convince people to buy that gasoline because there's a commodity market I can just sell into it and we'll be there as fast as I can grow. At the same time, his main competition is going to be the big oil companies, and that that's pretty daunting competition. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I asked him about that as well, obviously. He said he hopes to work with them at some point. When I brought this up with Julio, he said that he thought these startups, a logical endpoint for them would be to figure out the technology and then be acquired by the large gas companies or oil companies because you're going to need such a massive amount of infrastructure investment to get these things going. And they just have so many resources at their disposal that they might be willing to do it. And Rob actually had a number for how much he thought it would cost to build out his sort of direct air carbon capture gas for the United States market. And that was $800 billion. Okay, so let's imagine that you know, whether by acquisition by an oil company or through tech investment, Rob's company, Prometheus, is able to kind of succeed and scale up. Do you foresee at that point unintended consequences down the road? There must be. I mean, it always happens. If something gets to a global scale, there's going to be negative consequences that you haven't thought of beforehand. I think some of them are kind of obvious already. If you started having fuel made this way at such a large scale that would require a massive amount of energy. In some ways, it's just converting solar and wind energy into gasoline, if you think about it. And 
that's going to distort those markets or at least impact those markets. Another thing that might happen is just the amount of land that some of this would require has been something that's been brought up. If you need to build wind farms, you know, from horizon to horizon, it's going to be a problem. And then also with anything that gets to this scale, the big problems are, you know, yet to be determined. And that's it for this week's episode of Decrypted. Thanks for listening. If you're involved with carbon capture technologies, I'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at decrypted at Bloomberg.net or I'm on Twitter at Joshua Brustein. And I'm at Pia Gadkari. And please help us spread the word about our show by leaving us a rating or a review wherever you like to listen to podcasts. This episode was produced by Pia Gadkari and Lindsay Cradwell. Our story editor was Ann Vandermeer. Thank you also to Aki Ito, Emily Biuso, and Brad Stone. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll see you next week. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.